This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Uh, you might want to take out your Bible. We're going to be reading in a little bit from Acts chapter 15, uh, but that'll be a while before we get there. Now, if you were here last Sunday and we began our, uh, this series, Believe It, it was kind of last Sunday's message was a lot of bad news, wasn't it? Because we talked about how we are sinful, we are broken, we are lost, we're condemned, and, uh, and, and all that's in the scripture about, about who we are as, as fallen mankind. But today is going to be the good news, because the good news is this, lost, fallen, broken, condemned, doesn't have to last forever. Because what's broken in us, what's lost in us, what's fallen in us has an eternal fix. And we're going to talk about that, how God has fixed that for us uh, today. So I want to just take just a little bit of time and explain the most amazing truth in all the universe. And that means I'm going to raise more questions than I might give answers. And, uh, and that's why our, our current connection group study um, is based on these sermons, and, and this week in our groups, you'll have a chance to talk about those questions, and hopefully through your study in the Word of God, you'll find uh, the answers. You open it up together. By the way, let me say that questions are not bad things. Questions are, are good things because questions show that we are thinking, that we're not just sitting here like bumps on a log, that we're actually thinking about what we're hearing, and the key is that we look for the answers in the Scriptures. And sometimes God gives us the answers here. But, you know, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes we can search and search and search, and we cannot find the answer. And so when he doesn't provide the answer, we can't find it. What we got to do is we simply trust him, and we look forward to the, to the day when we get to see him face to face. And during that time in eternity, all those questions will be revealed in heaven. So, again, if you missed last Sunday and you want to catch up on what was said, go back to our website, and you can find that on the back of your worship guide, how to get there, and either listen to or watch the video, and it sets the stage for what you're going to hear and read today. Now, here's a universal truth, and by universal, I mean this applies to everybody in the world, everybody in the world, and here's that universal truth. No one wants to die without the hope of eternal life. Nobody wants to die without the hope of eternal life. Even those who say, I don't believe there's anything after this life. You know, you can say that all you want, but in your mind, I'm sure there's still this, I hope I'm true. I I wonder if that's not the case. Nobody wants to die without that hope. So what God has done is God has provided a way for us not only to have a reconnection with him, but to give us that hope. The early church in Jerusalem, the first church in the book of Acts, had the battle with teachers who came in and said to to the church, especially, we'll get to it in a little bit, a church up in Syria said to them, hey, it's not just about believing in Jesus. The gospel that Paul and Barnabas have been teaching you is incomplete. There's something that needs to be added to that. And they were talking about works. Well, the apostles then in Jerusalem took a stand for the simple gospel of salvation by grace through faith. So we take that same stand here at Nags Head Church. So here's what we believe. We're going to go through, I think, six points this morning. Number one, and let me encourage you to take good notes and to take your notes with you to your groups this week. Number one, the God who created us also loves us 
with a divine love. The God who created us loves us with a divine love. We left off last Sunday with the last point that we are the object of God's love. Loves us with a divine love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Let's read that. Read it aloud with me, will you? This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love, not that we love God. He doesn't love us because we love him. We love him because he loved us. God loves us with this divine love. And the Greek word for love there, if you're familiar with it, and I say Greek because the New Testament was written in the Greek language, which was a very exact language. The Greek word for love uh, is a love, the word is agape, and it means a supernatural sacrificing kind of love that cannot be humanly manufactured. It's not something that you love other people with unless God puts that love inside of you. And that's the love with which he loves us, this agape love, supernatural love. And unlike what many people think of when they think of love, it's not about feelings, it's about action. And really the same thing can be said about faith. We talked about this on Easter Sunday just a couple of weeks ago. It's not about feelings, it's about faith. You see, if your faith can best be described as how you feel about God, then you've got really a very shallow faith. We can read in James chapter 2, verse 26, where James tells us that faith is based not on feeling, but on fact. And without action, James says, without doing something with this faith that we have, our faith is dead. God's love for fallen and lost humanity, and that's us, sinful humanity, would not allow him. He created, this, he created people, and they, they blew it. And he didn't just walk away from humankind. He didn't say, okay, I wash my hands with them. I'm done with them. I quit. I'm over it. I'll go back to doing whatever it was God was doing before he created mankind. He didn't do that. wouldn't allow him to stand back and do nothing while everybody born after Adam and Eve went to hell. He couldn't do that. Why? Because he is love, and he had to do something about it. And because he's a just God, not only is he God a loving God, he's also a just God, a God who's law is perfect, he couldn't simply say, well, here's what I'll do. I'll just forget about it. I'll just wipe their slates clean and pretend like it never happened and we'll go from there. He couldn't do that either. His law, his perfect law had been broken, and it's been broken ever since by every single one of us. And his justice demanded that the penalty, and the penalty for our sin was death, that it be paid. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So God is all loving, but he's also just. And he had to bring those two together. Now, number two, through God, through, though we all deserve death, excuse me, though we all deserve death, God is also a God of grace. Important word today, grace. Romans 3.24 says, they, and you say, well, who are they he's talking about here? If you back up again, back up the truck, just one verse, all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. And he talks about sinners. Though uh, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption. Redemption means the purchase. That is in Christ Jesus. Now, what do those words mean? Justified, freely justified. Justified means to be pronounced not guilty. It's a legal term, meaning the guilty are free from condemnation. It's, it gives the picture of uh, the eternal 
God sitting in heaven at a judge's desk and he raises up the, the gavel and the moment you or me or whoever in this world says, I put my faith and trust in Jesus, believing that he died on the cross to pay for the penalty of my sin, God takes the gavel and slams it down on the desk and says, not guilty, justified. The old Sunday school definition that I learned when I was a little boy, and maybe you did as well, justified was just as if I never sinned. Now, does it mean I never sinned? No, it doesn't mean I never sinned. Does not guilty mean innocent? No, it doesn't. Not guilty means the penalty has been paid. It's just as though you never sinned because all of my sin was placed upon Christ on the cross. So God can declare you and me not guilty, justified. And we're justified how? Freely. Everybody understand what free is? Free? Without cost. Freely by his grace. Let me give you a quick definition of grace. Grace is is love that is undeserved and is free to the receiver. That's what grace is. Nothing can be done to earn grace because grace is a gift. When you and I give gifts to someone because it's their birthday or or it's Mother's Day coming up or it's Christmas or whatever it is, and we give somebody a gift, we're not doing that because of something they've done for us. We're not doing that because they came and helped us do something or the other. A gift, a gift is something that's not earned. It's something that we, we give to people. You know why we give gifts? Because we want to. That's really why we do it, because we want to. Grace is this gift that's free to the receiver. And it may sound incredible to us, but the Bible tells you and me this in Revelation, or excuse me, Romans chapter 5, that God's love toward us was offered to us when we were still in our sinful condition. We're still sinners. We're still enemies, it says in Romans, of God's. Yet God says, hey, you know what? I love you, and I'm going to offer this gift of grace to you. You're still my enemy. You don't want like me. You don't want anything to do with me, but I love you now. And I offer this gift of grace. That's an amazing thing, and it's something that we have a hard time understanding because we don't necessarily act that way. Just as incredible, and this is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, this love for you and for me, where did it get its beginning? Revelation tells us that this love for us began in eternity past. What does that mean? Before you and I were ever thought of, before God ever spoke the words, you know, let there be light, he created light, and he created the earth, and all that happened way back. His love for you and I began before the Bible had its first chapter in Genesis, before that story ever took place. God, and that means what? God has always loved me, always loved you. And that's why John, the apostle, wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love him, why? Because he first loved us. It's, again, it's not the other way around. God doesn't look around the earth for people who love him and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to love you back. It says God loved you and me before we knew who he was, before we respected him, before we cared about him. While we were sinning and rebelling against, us, against him, God loved us first. And too many people picture God as only a God of justice, and they minimize his graciousness. But with God, when I think of God and I think of justice and grace, mercy and so forth, I, I, God is a very, he's, let me say it this way, God is the most balanced person in the universe. Right? He is able to have both 
justice and grace equally. And so what did this grace and justice move God to do? Number three, God became a man to be our substitute and payment. Became man to be our substitute and payment. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says Christ died for us. John 3.16, you know that verse. We're told there that God gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, as our substitute, and, and which means he came to die in my place. Jesus came to die for me. He died in order to pay the penalty that was required by God's justice, which was death. And I owed that penalty because I'm a sinner. Every one of us has sinned. But only someone who was innocent could have provided the payment. Another sinner could not have died for other sinners. It doesn't work that way. Had to be someone innocent so God could pronounce us not guilty. And the only one qualified as the innocent one was God's only son. So on the cross, Jesus suffered and he died to offer us forgiveness of our sin and to allow us to exchange our everlasting punishment for his everlasting life. And here's where the grace comes in. He offers us this forgiveness and he offers us this life free of charge. Absolutely free. And true, you say, well, it wasn't free. It cost Jesus a whole lot. Absolutely, it did. It was, it was, it was not free to him, but he gives it free to us. It costs him his life, but it costs us nothing. It's a gift, and a gift cannot be bought and cannot be earned. So number four says this. There is nothing we can add to what Christ has done. If you found that passage in Acts 15, I want you to turn there. I'm going to read just a few verses, but let me give you a little bit of the context of what's happening, the story. The church at Jerusalem, the very first church, has grown and it's exploded and Christians are going up and all around the world and that part of the world and sharing the gospel and, and some Christians have gone up into Syria, which is north of Jerusalem, into the city of Antioch. By the way, when you heard a couple of years ago about the Christians in Syria being killed and how there were Christians in that part of the world longer than any other place, well, other than Jerusalem, that's the case. They've been there since the first century. Christians have. And these, these Christians went up to Antioch and began sharing the gospel, and lots and lots of people in Antioch were becoming Christians, primarily Gentile people like you and me, non-Jewish people. Well, Barnabas is up there. Barnabas, who was a, he was a part of the Jerusalem church. He, he's very well known for his encouragement. He was very well known for being the person that when Saul, the persecutor, trusted Christ and came back to Jerusalem, Barnabas was the only one that was really bold enough to befriend him. Barnabas is up there, and this church is growing and, and getting larger and larger, and Barnabas is looking around at what's happening, and he said, I, I can't do this by myself. And so he, he contacts an old friend of his, this Saul who became the apostle Paul, and, and he says, can you come here and help me with this church? It's more than I can deal with, handling all these Christians and teaching them and discipling. Come and help me. So, the, so Paul moves to Antioch, and they're teaching, and they're preaching, and the church is doing well. But in the meantime, up from Jerusalem have come some Jews that they, the way they're described in the New Testament is they're called Judaizers, which meant they claimed to be professed to be Christians, but they also wanted to make everybody who was not Jewish, Jewish first. Before you can become a Christian, they were teaching, you've got to first become a Jew which means you've got to obey all the Old Testament commandments, the law of Moses, and you've got to practice all the dietary restrictions and all the things 
that Jews had to do, you've got to become Jewish before you can really become a Christian. Well, that bothered the Gentiles, and especially the Gentile men, because part of that requirement said to all the Gentile men, before you can become a Christian, you've got to become a Jew, which means you've got to be circumcised. And, you know, the Jewish men are looking and saying, I don't know about that one. You know, that's, a, that's kind of a tough one. So they're having this controversy in the church of what does it mean to be a Christian? Paul and Barnabas are teaching it's by faith in Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. The Judaizers are saying that's not enough. There's got to be more. You've got to become Jewish first. And so Paul and Barnabas say, look, here, here's how we're going to settle this. Let's go down to Jerusalem and meet with the apostles and the pastors of the Jerusalem church and let them figure it out for us. And then whatever they say, that's what we'll do. So they go to Jerusalem and they rehearse this before the apostles and the, and the elders there in the Jerusalem church. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. And as they're telling this, here's what's going on up here in Antioch. Some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees? They're the very, 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 very strict, conservative Jews that gave Jesus such a hard time. But apparently some of them have now become Christians, yet they're still holding on to all this Old Testament law that they're trying to obey. Some of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. They cannot become Christians unless first they become Jews. Verse 6, then the apostles and the elders assembled to consider this matter. The apostles and the pastors got together and they began to discuss it. We don't know how long they discussed it, but they're talking about this and trying to come up with a conclusion. And after there had been, verse 7, much debate, Peter stood up. You know Peter. And he said to them, Brothers, you're aware that in the early days, talking about the early days of the church, God made a choice among you. And the choice was that by my mouth, my preaching, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe it. And then you go back to chapter 10 in the book of Acts and read the story of this Roman centurion named Cornelius who was seeking for God. And God sent Peter to him and he said, hey, I, I want to know how do I get to know God? And Peter shared the gospel of Jesus with him. And Cornelius, as best we know, as recorded in the word of God, became the first Gentile to trust Christ as Savior, the first non-Jew to believe. And Peter says, you remember that story. Of course we remember that, Peter. And God, verse 9, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Now, verse 9. He made no distinction between us, us Jews, and them, the Gentile. No difference. Cleansing their hearts by what? Faith. Not by works of the law, not by circumcision, by faith. Verse 10, now then, why are you, and he's talking to those who were agreeing with the Pharisees, agreeing with the Judaizers that maybe they need to obey all the Moses' laws. He said, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. He said, here's what you're doing. You're taking all this law and said, now you've got to do all these things, and it's like a burden that you're putting on them. And let's be real honest, he says to his Jewish brothers. We haven't been able to keep God's law, have we? Never. We've been breaking it for 2,000 years, and yet now you're telling the Gentiles they've got to keep this law in order to be saved? What are we thinking here? Something's not right. Verse 11, 
On the contrary, let's not put this yoke on them. On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. And how did he cleanse their hearts, he said earlier? By faith. Now, the fact that we are incapable of doing anything to earn or work our way to heaven has never set well with us as humans. We always want to do something. There's got to be something more that I can do. No one likes to feel helpless. No one likes to feel like I'm unable to better myself. No one likes to be told, your only choice for your eternal salvation is to depend on someone else. We don't want to be that way, but the Bible says that's the only way. That's part of our human nature, by the way, and the result of us being sinners that we have this thing called pride. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Thank you very much. And God, in his word, is saying, no, let go of the bootstraps. That won't help. You can't do it that way. And for that reason, the doctrine of salvation has been twisted and contrived by so so many so-called Christian denominations. Surely there must be something we can do. So a lot of things have been come up with, they've come up with in the last 2,000 years, a lot of distortions that include such ideas as keeping a list of rules. You've got to keep this list of rules. You know, even the Ten Commandments, which is a list of rules, isn't it? Ten, thou shalt, thou shalt not. Even the Ten Commandments, we know, were not given to be a way to gain salvation. If I just keep the Ten Commandments, maybe I'll get to heaven. Can't do it. The Ten Commandments were not given to be a way of salvation. The Ten Commandments were given to show us that none of us is perfect and we're unable to be perfect. Other rules that people come up with might be about food or appearance. Requiring baptism to be part B. Some believe, well, you've got to believe and be baptized in order to go to heaven. Baptism is our public profession of the faith that we have already put in Christ. Faith is simply believing, as we're going to see in a moment. Believers' baptism, you look at it in the New Testament, and it always followed faith. Always came after faith, never before. Believer's baptism follows faith and is that first step of becoming a disciple, becoming a learner of Christ. Another distortion has been, well, I'm, gonna, I'm counting on my church membership. I, was, I joined the church when I was very young. Maybe your church membership uh, began as a child or an adult, whenever it might have been. I remember growing up and, and, uh, in, in a Southern Baptist church and all the guys, you know, were, the pastor would get up at the end of the service and stand in the front and people would come down the aisle and shake his hand and join the church. And I remember the guys saying to me, in my age, I said, well, you know, I was kind of new to that church and what, what is going on here? Well, when you're, the, and the answer I got was something like this. When you get to be 11 or 12, that's what you do. You come up and you shake the preacher your hand you say I want to join the church and then the next Sunday they take and baptize you and now you're a member of the church and you're going to heaven counting on church membership is not about becoming a Christian it's becoming a Christian is about uh, or church membership I should say follows becoming a Christian and is part again of being a disciple or a fully devoted follower of Christ joining a church is an obedience issue it's a service issue it's a fellowship issue but it is not a salvation issue. Now, raise the question. So then, Rick, can people be saved and have eternal life and not belong to a local church? And the answer is sure. Because salvation is about faith in Christ. It's not about being a member of a church. 
Sure, you can do that, but I would ask the question, why would anyone choose to ignore so much of the New Testament that teaches us the validity and the value of being in community with the local church? Why would you not want to be a part of the body of Christ? Jesus is going to ask that question, I think, of a whole lot of people when they stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, said, how come you never got part of the, you know, that nag said church, that was just down the road from where you live, and I put them there so that you could be part of that community, but you never did. What was wrong with you, he's going to ask. How about living a life of total commitment to Christ? Is that what being a Christian is? In modern theological terms, that might be called lordship salvation. Now, you've got to be totally committed to Jesus Christ. Again, faith is not committing to something. Faith is believing in something, trusting in something or someone. When you say, and I I hear people say this, well, you're not truly saved unless you give your whole life and your will and devotion to Christ. What's really happening there is they're taking discipleship issues and putting it before salvation, putting the cart before the horse. Jesus wants us all to be totally committed, doesn't he? I think so, as a Christian. I believe that's his will for my life, but that's a matter of discipleship. And So let me ask a question. Let's be real honest. I'm going to be honest with you right now. If being a Christian, if being saved is being totally committed to Jesus Christ, then there's a whole lot of days when I'm not. I'm not always totally committed to Christ. Are you? Maybe you are, but I find there's a lot, whole lot of times in my life when I'm, my walk is not totally committed to Christ. How do you know that, Rick? Because I commit sin. And if I'm committing sin, where's my commitment to Christ? You see, I've set it aside, maybe momentarily, but I've set it aside. At that moment in my life, is Jesus my Lord? Not really, because Lord means he has ownership, control of my life. And I've said, you know, I want to take this away from you for just a minute while I do this or that. That would be a sinful thing. So is it total commitment of my life? No, it's faith. And it's total faith, by the way, but it's faith. So don't confuse salvation with commitment. Because that kind of idea of salvation, you know what it does? It produces doubt. It produces doubt in people's lives, and it puts, get this, if you don't get anything else this morning, get this part, if you're a Christian. It it makes assurance of salvation based on my performance rather than on Christ's promises. How well am I doing? And that raises some other issues. Any combination of good deeds might be on that that list of distortions. When good deeds become part of the salvation equation, someone has to say, when have I done enough? When have I done enough good deeds to qualify for everlasting life? And the problem is, there is no place in the Bible that says, okay, when you get to this level of good deeds, you're good to go. It doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't use good deeds at all as, as salvation issues, but it does tell you it's not by our good works. Now, it's totally by Christ and not by you and me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you're saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not from works that you and I can do so that nobody can boast. Nobody will be in heaven who will say, who will walk up to you and say, hey, you know, um, let's talk about how we got here. I'm here because I lived a really, really, really good life. How about you? That person won't be there that says that because that's not how we gain entrance into God's family. It's not by works. 
The next verse that follows Ephesians 2, 8, 9 would be verse 10. And verse 10 says, but he has saved us. He's recreated us so that we could do good works. So the good works follow the salvation, but the good works don't save us. The good works point other people to Christ. That's the purpose of those works. So it's not about how many good works we can do. So number five, there is one condition for salvation. That one condition is belief. You can read about that in John chapter 1, verses, verses 7 and verse 12. Now, think with me here. Since we do nothing to earn or deserve the gift of salvation, nothing that I can do to earn it, to deserve it, how do I get it? And the answer is, throughout the New Testament, God's word tells us that everlasting life is given to those who believe. You know, again, John 3.16, we know that, believe. The word believe means to have faith in Christ. Those two words, believe and faith, come from the same Greek word, which means to trust in or rely upon. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 29 gives a story. It's not a story about people who believe to, to have everlasting life, but it's about a couple blind men who Jesus asked them about. They wanted to be healed, and Jesus, well, let's look at what Jesus said, and it helps us understand what faith is. Matthew 29, verse 27, Jesus went on from there, and as he did, two blind men followed him. You can imagine Jesus is walking down the road, and two blind men heard that he's right around them close by, and they've heard the stories about Jesus being able to heal blind people and handicapped people and raise people from the dead and all these things. And they know he's close by. They can't see him, but they know he's there, and they cry out to him. They say aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Well, he knows they're talking to him. And so he stops and he turns and he sees these two blind men not far away. He enters the house and the blind men where they were, and the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? Now, what were they asking him to do? Have mercy on us. They were asking him to heal their blindness. So he asks them a question. Do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord, they answered him. They believed that he could do this. Now look what it says, verse 29. And then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. What was Jesus showing us? Believing, faith are the same thing. They're the same word in the Greek. And Jesus said, because of your faith. And then the next verse, the words say, and their eyes were opened. He healed them. So simply put, we are saved when we have trusted in Christ alone as our Savior. Not Christ plus baptism. Not Christ plus church membership, not Christ plus good works, not Christ plus anything else, not Christ plus mama's prayers. We're saved when we, are, we have put our trust alone in Christ. He said in John 14, 6, that he alone is the way to the Father. And by the way, John's gospel is the only book in the Bible whose express purpose, John said, the reason I wrote this is so that people who read it can know how to have everlasting life. That's why I wrote this gospel, John chapter 20, verse 31. And if you read the book of John, the key word that jumps out over and over, in fact, the textbook that I had in college when I studied the gospel of John, I had a class that was the gospel of John, and the name of the textbook, I still remember, still see it, it's written on the back of the spine of the book, the gospel of belief. 
Because the key word in, God, in John's gospel is believe, believe, believe. It's also important that when we share the good news of salvation that we use sound biblical words, church, to describe it. For instance, you won't find any mention in the Bible of anybody saying, well, what you need to do is ask Jesus into your heart. It doesn't say that. That's not what believe is. Nor will you find somebody in the Bible giving his life to Jesus. We're not told to ask. We're told to trust. We're not told to give anything. We're told salvation is not me giving to God. My salvation is me receiving him. That's what salvation is. The gift that he gives, John 1, 12 and 13. We're not told to pray, to pray a certain worded prayer. We're told to believe. So it's important that we do not put the cart before the horse. Now, some insist that unless you have repented of all of your sins, and by that they mean, I quit sinning, God. I'm making you this deal. I'll no longer do that if I can be saved. And so they repent of their sins. Some say, unless you do that, you're not saved. And so they require that someone commit their lives to his lordship in order to be saved. I remember hearing Charles Stanley. Anybody ever heard Charles Stanley? I remember hearing him preach a sermon years ago. And he got up and speaking to this arena filled with Baptist pastors. And he said, some of y'all got this wrong. He said, because some of you are front-loading, those were his words, the gospel. You're telling people that before they can be saved, they've got to quit their sin. They've got to stop doing that stuff. And he said, you got it backwards. Uh, once we become Christians, do we not like our sin anymore? And the answer is yes, because this Holy Spirit comes in us to convict us. So Christians become repenters, don't we? When we have the Lord's Supper, we talk about that very often, about this is a time to confess my sin. And when I confess my sin, I'm expressing to God I agree with him about what I've done, and I don't want to do this anymore. But the Bible is very clear that as Christians, we become that only by saving faith. There, and, and repentance and so forth, that's part of a, the life of a disciple. One is learning and growing in Christ. All Christians are believers. Unfortunately, not all Christians are disciples. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. Read those verses and see about some Christians there in Corinth. The, the reformers cried in the 1500s. One of their cries in, in rebelling, if you will, against the, the status quo in the Catholic Church was the two words, two Latin words, sola fide, which means faith alone. So, no repentance for salvation. Well, the word repent literally means to change one's mind. That's what repent means. So here's how it works. When a sinner realizes that he or she is going the wrong way of life, and then that person, you or me, or he or she or them, realize I'm going the wrong way in life, and I hear the gospel of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit draws me, draws you, draws them away from their old life. We call that conversion. That's where repentance fits into salvation. Because believing in Jesus, if it's nothing else, it's a change of mind. It's saying, I can't save myself. I can't continue going the way I'm going and expect to have everlasting life. So I change my mind about whoever I was and however I was living, and I turn to Christ, trust in Christ as my Savior, trust in him alone. Even those people that might say, I used to be an atheist. Or I used to be a cultist, but now I accept Jesus as my Savior. By accepting Christ, they have repented. Belief in Jesus is a change of mind. Number six, last point. He gives us an eternally secure 
salvation. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul writes and says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life. Paul's going to make a list here. He says, let me think of everything in the world that can impossibly get in my way of, of having everlasting life. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. He says, everything in the world, nothing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. When I was a a child, when I was 10, and I accepted Christ as my Savior, I believed in him. The man that sat down with me and showed me some scriptures said, Here, Rick, let's read John 5.24. What a great verse. Jesus said this, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. So what this means is we believe in the, the idea of once saved, always saved. And here's where a lot of believers get tripped up. Because I, I've been asked this question, you mean if I'm saved and I've trusted Jesus as my Savior and I go out and I commit murder, or I commit suicide, I'm still going to go to heaven? And the answer is yes. Here's why. All of my sins and all of yours, if you put your faith in him, all of our sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven where, Christian? At the cross. Yep. When you're born again into God's family by receiving that forgiveness, he establishes a father-child relationship with you. That means sinful behavior has an effect on our fellowship with him. Just like when you were a child and you did something, you broke one of your parents' rules, you did something you knew were going to get in trouble for, you avoided mom and dad at all costs, didn't you? You didn't look them in the eye, you kind of hid away, hoping they would never find it, never see it. You avoid, it had an effect on your fellowship. The same thing is true with us and God. It hinders, for example, our prayer life, but it will not sever our relationship. And a great example, Jesus gave maybe the perfect example, illustration of this was the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. That young man no longer deserved to be his father's son. He even said so, but the father accepted him back. He cleaned him up. He welcomed him home, and he did not condemn him. That's why it's called grace. So very simply, everlasting life means just that. It's everlasting. When people say to me, I don't believe that, I think God will take it away if I do certain things. I say, okay, you know John 3.16? You believe John 3.16? Of course I do. Let's say it together. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I said, now please, will you define everlasting to me? You know? Again, it's not rocket science. Everlasting means what, church? Yeah, everlasting. There is no end. Because I can do nothing to earn this salvation, I can do nothing to forfeit it. God's Salvation is God's gift to you and to me. And, and it, here, please again, get this. It's by his power, not my performance, that he preserves me and holds a place for me forever. So the Bible says it's by grace and not works. It's because of God's great love that he gave his son to pay the penalty for my sin and give me new birth that gives me life. And he says to you and to me, believe in me, trust in me 100%, and I'll give you everlasting life. And he promises that you can know for sure that you're saved. 
I always, and I talk to Christians, hey, well, do you know that you're going to heaven? And I have some people that say, you know, I really hope so. I really hope that that happens. And I said, well, let's look at this first. 1 John 5, 13, John writes, he says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to Christians, isn't he? I'm writing, writing to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not a guess, not a hope so. You never have to do it. It's a great verse of assurance. So this morning, very simply, let me encapsulate it into this little equation. Belief equals eternal life. And you may be here, someone today, that you've depended in your whole life on your church tradition, your own morality, your good works to gain God's favor. I hope this morning I've shown you from the scriptures that none of those things count with God. They don't matter when it comes to eternal life. The only way is through Jesus Christ. We're going to sing in just a moment. And then after we sing, our pastors are going to be up here. They would love to talk with you and pray with you. If the need of your life right now is to come to Christ, they would love to introduce you to him. Let's bow in prayer. The greatest need of humanity from the creation of man when Adam and Eve sinned until today is how do I find this relationship with God? And Father, we thank you that you provided this way and you've made it really plain and really simple, so simple that you said little children can understand it and believe it. And I know that's a fact, God, because I trusted in Christ as my Savior when I was 10. There may be someone here today, Lord, that's never accepted Christ. They've they've been going to church, they've counted on that, baptism, whatever it might be, good works and so forth, but they've never said, you know what, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. That's all that I need. I pray that today they might come to you and find that faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.